Hey everyone, this is Jamie Alabach coming at you on the Peppered Podcast, where I bring season talk for food and beverage marketing brand professionals. My guest on the show today is Mark Chudnoff. Mark is one of the leading industry experts in marketing research. Uh, he founded Chudnoff and Associates in 1989, and he's got this great niche, this expertise in food and beverage. Uh, he works with brands on all aspects of research, including qualitative and quantitative. He does brand tracking, ANU studies, brand awareness and behavior. He does sensory testing for new products, which is just crucial before you launch these products. Hey, research and insights is such a critical component when it comes to managing and growing your food and beverage brand. I'm sure you're going to gain some terrific insights on the podcast today. No pun intended. Let's join the show. Building and investing uh, in CPG food and beverage brands, it's expensive. I mean, it can be very expensive. If we're talking media, we could be talking about significant dollars, uh, millions and millions and millions, depending on the size of, of your brand, of course. But whether you're spending 100000 or $100 million, you want to make sure you're spending in an effective manner. Um, how brands can reduce the risk of making major marketing investments, that's what we're here to talk about uh, with our guest today. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you, Jamie. It's nice to be here. I'm really glad to have you. So we're talking about mitigating risk uh, as it pertains to, to marketing spend and marketing investment. What are some areas where companies and brands spend large portions of marketing dollars that really are continually at risk? Right. There are many areas they do spend a ton of money. However, uh, four areas I'd like to bring up for today's talk and discussion is really the development of brand positioning and messaging. Uh, also, the uh, production of communication materials, which is your collateral materials, your print advertising, your TV advertising, and also digital and social media advertising. Quite an expensive um, investment, and you just have to be not cognizant of that. And then you have product development costs, which in the food business, is that's key, uh, whether it's developing a new product or just um, refining your current products. And finally, website development. If your website's not communicating what you need to communicate, that's a key area. Right. These are all these are all big budget items for for companies, and you and you want to make sure you get it right. So when we talk about investing in these areas, we're talking really about time, talent, you know, treasure, dollars. Sometimes companies and brands, they don't even think about the amount of dollars that go into people resources. Uh, these are very big budget items. Uh, brand managers need to get these done and get them done right. And uh, what, what we have here is, is we want to maximize effectiveness in the process. Um, how, how can companies better, better do this? Okay. Uh, this is sometimes the best-kept secret and, and underutilized secret in many in areas, and that is marketing insights. When used properly... Uh, as any tool, uh, it'll be one of really the most valuable tools that your organization will have, uh, really to help make informed decisions that will ultimately reduce the risk of your marketing investments. The feeling is knowing more is the goal when you do research. Uh, you want to know more. You want to know more um, in order to make an informed decision. The more informed you are, the stronger you are in controlling risk 
and protecting your investments. Right. Knowledge, knowledge is power. Insights, the, the, the more you know, the more you can adapt and change what you're doing to make it better. It's like this refining, refining process. So let's, let's, let's talk about one of these examples. In, in the area of brand development, um, you know, we have, we, as an agency, as, as all agencies do, you know, we have a very thorough process that we take food and beverage brands through. I mean, we've been working on it and modifying it and improving it for, for, for 28 years or so. Um, you know, so we have, we have our ins and outs of that, and we have, you know, re- research built into certain areas, and sometimes companies, you know, want to invest heavily in that, and others want to move right on to the stuff. But what do you recommend to companies who are working on this brand process, brand development? How can they use insights, and what, what does that get them? How does that get them to a better brand position, brand messaging, their, their overall brand platform? How, do, how does insight and research make that better? Well, ultimately, you want to reduce your downside risk. And that, that's part of what research does for you. It helps, it informs you, it gives you insights into the market. And the first thing you want to do is you want to know more about your customer. That's the first step. You want to understand their satisfaction, their loyalty, their attitudes towards your brand, your product, what they're thinking, and their behavior, their usage. That's such a novel idea. You know, so often, you know, I find myself sitting around a table or with my team or we're sitting there with a client and you've got a bunch of insiders sitting there thinking, hmm, boy, this sounds like a great idea. I think our consumers are going to love it. (laughs) But they they don't take the time to, to really ask and understand. I mean, I, literally, I was just sitting with a client yesterday, and they're, they're going through, the, they're, look, they're showing me this stuff that they have developed on their own for, for their brand, and I'm there. Have you, you know, have you asked the customers about this yet? Have you, have you done any research to really see what, how, how consumers feel about this? And they said, no, we didn't, you know, we didn't, haven't had the time to do that, and we don't even know if we're going to do it. I mean, it's such a valuable piece of the equation. Uh, definitely. And in developing a direction for a company, sometimes you have members of the organization that have their own ideas, and they sort of get their group of staff to agree with them on it, and everybody's on board. But is the consumer on board is the real question. And a lot of times we'll go and under, try to understand that, and we find that, no, they're not, and we better redirect what we're doing. Yeah, and you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of detour a little bit here because I think that, that that is such – I mean, one of the things you just said, that someone, someone in the company might have their, have their own agenda. And I, that, that, I think, in particular for, for brand managers and brand directors and even, even CMOs to a point is that – they, they'll come up with something or they'll get a directive from, you know, the CEO or the president or the owner of the company and they'll say, I want to do this. And they're so afraid to push back and say, you know, this is probably not the right way to go. How can we get consumer inputs? And I am, I'm constantly challenging people on that because, look – I've been in this business for, for, for 33 years. I have strong opinions on things. You have great opinions on things. Clients have great opinions on things, but so many times our opinions are in a vacuum, and although they might be insightful and, and, and we've got a lot of years and experience behind us, we don't always have the answer that consumers have. Is that, is that accurate? Totally agree. Uh, many times we find that, and uh, many times what will happen is 
the, the, the force and the focus of the corporation and the, the powers that be will push it right through into the market when they get there and they wonder, why isn't it working? That's when they'll come back and say, well, let's figure this out. And at that time, number one, it cost them a lot of money. They spent a lot of money on the investment and their return is minimal. And now they're going to spend even more money to try to correct it. And in some instances, if you go out in one with a positioning the first time and it doesn't work, it's harder to do it the second. Yeah, exactly. So that was my little detour. So let's get back to this thought around insights around the brand, the brand development. Okay. And also one other thing in working with all areas of product development and, and understanding your brand, um, certain managers fall in love with their ideas. And once they fall in love with it, it's really difficult to modify that love. And sometimes, you know, it takes a lot. And some of the managers, what they try to do at times is management will think of an idea and say, this is what I want to do. And sometimes the, the marketing managers below them will say, look, I don't think this is right. Let's do some insights. Let's understand the market a little. And then they come back, and that's the way to manage management's expectations as well. Yeah, they get stuck on an idea. It's hard to get them to move off. Well, anyway, moving back to what we were talking about, what understand, know more about the customers. That's your first step. You can understand the market. You don't send the voids. You can understand the opportunities. You know more about your market. And this provides a benchmark, really, of where you may make the greatest impact in the marketplace. What are the strengths that you can use and the strengths of your brand? What are the weaknesses that give, you can look at and have opportunities to change and grow? The second part is you want to know more about the brand itself. Uh, do you have the best positioning? So important. Um, are you relevant to your target audience? Is what you're saying relevant to these people? Where can the positioning be better developed? Where are the strengths? How can you further develop it? Are you performing against your value proposition? So important. And does it have to be modified? What should be changed? How should we change it? These are all pieces that you learn from your insights. What is your image in the marketplace? So often you think you have a great image. Surprise, surprise. Let me tell you, many my clients come back and say, oh, no, we, we are great in the marketplace. I just last week we had that. And they came back. We did the study. And they said, uh-oh, we have to really make some major changes. Yeah, so. that's, that's, a, that's a huge point. And I see that all the time is that insiders with the brands, insiders with the company, they think because they've been pushing out this messaging for so long, because they've been pushing out their 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 brand platform for so long that they they think that consumers think exactly like that. And that's just rarely, rarely the case. And that's I think that has changed so significantly in the last 10 years because there's so much more of a dialogue going on with consumers and brands now with, with the whole social media platform that, that, if, that if brands are smart enough, they can get those insights early on and then they're, they're not constantly pushing out messaging but it's more of a more of a conversation and and it can validate oftentimes you know what what the brand mood is what the tone is what the character of the brand is totally right that's exactly what it is and is your brand positioning also strong in a competitive framework and that's very key you have to understand you're not in a vacuum you have to always be cognizant of your competition 
typically very it's a simple process pretty much uh, to evaluate your your customer's brand and their um, competitive environment and usually we use what's known as an attitude and usage study very basic and there's different nuances of it but for the most part once you get your attitude usage and usually throw awareness in um, that'll give you insights into your marketplace an example of a company that actually went through this process was and was very successful was a new yogurt company and it was really important. They imported new yogurt. It was out of the country. Uh, and it had a new taste. It was very different than the U.S. taste. And it was learned that their initial positioning was not really appealing because it, did, it focused on the wrong claims and benefits. They had this unique taste that would really appeal to the U.S. market, but they didn't even highlight it. And they recognized that. And this was, they developed it further once they recognized that. And you know, it gave them more reasons for purchasing their product. And it was successful after that. Now, if you find there are areas that you would like to develop, uh, you should look at various value propositions, obviously, and test the, and which resonates the most with most consumers in your target market. Usually, you always come up with more than one value proposition. Well, which is the best? If you want to test all, if you want to go in a market with all of them, that's costly. Go out with the most effective one, and that's why we test those. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point too. Is is looking at a range of of, of things, and and a lot of times this is where you can you know, appease folks within the organization. If they have an idea that they're really bent on testing, you can say, yeah, okay, let's let's test this idea, but let's also go in with these other, you know, two, three positions or messages and, and let consumers really see what they gravitate towards. Right. And one important or additional aspect is always put some kind of control measure in it. Uh, we find that a lot where you'll test alternatives and there's no base to measure against. There's no control. And usually we, you can, the company can identify something that they would say is, well, this is where I want to be, or this is a control, or this is a major competitor's positioning. We want to be as good or better. But you have to set up some type of control when measuring your alternatives. So defi- define that a second. When you talk about control, you could either be talking about you know, we want we want to be positioned. We want people to feel as good about us as they do about brand X, as good or better. Or we want our product to taste as good as this or better. Is that what you mean by control? Definitely. Or if even if you have a current product that you're te- you you actually are on the market with that's doing very well, and you're putting a new product in. What's your control? Your control is I want to be as good as what I have out in the market currently, and I know how high is up. I know what good is. And at least they have something to measure against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, fi- third, in the term, talking about branding, is again, the more you know, said the better you are. And again, the more you want to know about your communication. That's goes. It's an understatement. <laughs> um, is your message really being communicated effectively? You have to understand that. Is the communication generating awareness and impact? These are the kind of things you want to really explore. Are you? Are your social media programs effective? So many times you, you feel, are, are they, your social media programs, are they really, they're not even consistent to what you're trying to accomplish. The social media is just a piece of your whole advertising mix. So they have to do their part in the advertising communication mix, and that shouldn't be neglected. Uh, is your overall communication enhancing your brand? Is, are you really getting a benefit from it? Uh, you know, that's, that's always been an issue, and that's something that we 
always find is very useful. Right. And, and do, you know, sometimes consumers respond a certain way and brands don't really understand why and they, and they don't articulate it well in, in consumers, I, with, with consumers. I remember um, a few years ago we were working for this national, uh, this national brand and they knew that, that moms liked, you know, giving their product to kids for snack. They just, they, they knew it, but they didn't dig in deep enough to really understand why. And, and we ended up doing some research and, it, you know, and it turns out that, you know, moms, you know, they felt good about it. It made them, it made them happy because they were, they were giving their kids something that was a little bit better for you. I mean, it wasn't a bag of carrots and celeries, but it was a better snack alternative that made them happy. But it also made them happy that their kids loved it. So, you know, drilling it down, they loved, the kids loved the taste. So there was this kind of duality that, that, that moms were happy about those things. And we were able to take those, those two nuggets and build that into basically a brand platform to, to talk to moms. And, it, and you know what? It resonated with, with other moms. I mean, it really, really worked. Totally. And if you didn't have those insights, you wouldn't even know where to begin to make the modifications to actually create that kind of right. uh, response. Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing I just wanted to bring up is the website supporting your brand and product. Um, many times we see that where the website does its own thing and it has to be supportive. Uh, we, if it doesn't support what you're trying to communicate, it's not part of your communication process, you're not going to get the effectiveness you want from your website. Right. Another area where, you know, some designer might come up with a great, great, cool, flashy design, but they've put no thought into the consumer experience. What's the consumer journey when they're coming onto the website? And that's often a step that gets skipped and can really be really be worked out so much more effectively and efficiently through um, through research. So how about how about more um, more established brands, brands that have been in the market for for many years? Uh, what are some ways they can reduce risk of losing their strength as a brand in the marketplace? Because we see that all the time with with legacy brands and existing brands that have been out there, and these other brands are chipping away at their at their market share, and and so many of these brands just keep charging ahead full steam, doing it the way that 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 they've been doing it. What are some ways that they can change and adapt? Well, again, the first step is really you want to know more about the product. And, and knowing more about the product, what is the current awareness image of your product versus your competition? Your competition may be doing so much more and you're getting lost in that whole mix. And so therefore, not people are not as aware of you anymore because there's different focus in the marketplace. So that's the first step. Understand how entrenched your product is. But then even just as important is how well is your product performing in light of the new competition coming in? Tastes constantly keep changing. And you have to stay above that. Uh, and so periodically, you should be evaluating your product to make sure that your taste profile is within what's needed as the market changes its taste needs. Yeah, and not just taste, but also trends like like this 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 better for your foods and cleaner cleaner labels. I just saw yesterday, and I reposted it on LinkedIn because I thought it was such a good piece of content. 
how Capri, the Capri, the drink just kind of relaunched their their branding and their packaging and their messaging, and they really emphasized areas where they they cleaned up their label and they're going out with with this better messaging. You know, 100% juice. We don't have preservatives and things like that. And that that makes a huge difference. If, you, if you're not paying attention to that sort of thing with consumers through insights. You're going to miss it, and you can keep charging full steam ahead with with your brand. And it, and it's I, I always tell brands that it's like this. It's not you're not going to see this huge drop off in sales. It's going to be this erosion over over the years. Correct. You're 100 percent right. And it's even the communication that you're doing that. Sometimes when you actually change your labeling and look at even the, the green labeling, and uh, you're doing more in terms of what you're trying to change your product to look more like acceptable in the environment, if you don't communicate it, people are not going to know it. Right. So it has to be within the communication as well. Exactly. How about, how about new products prior to introduction? Like, as you know, prior to them launching the brand and launching the product, what, what, what can these new... Because we're seeing this all over the place with big companies and small companies, innovation, developing new new products. What can they do along that pathway to make sure that they're going out with, with the best product that consumers are going to like, that the taste is right, that the package, that everything is right about it? We're not talking about modifying uh, existing products. We're talking about maybe launching a new product or, or a new within a new category. Okay. The first step, honestly, uh, first of all, for food and food service companies, sensory testing is key. I mean, without sensory testing, I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. However, because it's going to reduce your risk in developing the new product, especially to, prov- to prevent it from failing. The, the, but the, to start with, the first thing you have to do is number, number one, for food and food service companies, Sensory testing is key in reducing the risk developing new products that may fail. Uh, the objective is really to evaluate the idea that the product, uh, the idea and the product prior to development. So you want to get the product idea developed well and the product itself prior to introduction. What is the best alternative new product that should be developed? In other words, you may have many ideas. What is the best one that should be developed? And are the new products or line extensions developed enhancing your product line with a minimal cannibalization of the core products? Very key. So as you introduce new products, you want to make sure it's enhancing your brand, it's enhancing your line, and you're not cannibalizing what you currently have with your core products. Those are key. The first step in is really, again, going back to concept testing. You want to reduce the number of concepts that you are interested in prior to developing the product. That's the first step. So you, you have an idea, you have the concept, and you want to understand what do, what do consumers think about that idea and what you're offering. So this is before you get into, you know, developing, you know, any type of taste profiles or products or packaging. This is purely just testing an idea. Correct. Do, do consumers, would moms, would dads be interested in, in this type of an idea and giving it a little bit of a description and just seeing, floating some rough ideas, kind of like just gut checking some of the, the rough ideas of which one surface to the top. Right. And also it helps in the development of the product as well and where you have to develop it. And you just want to make certain that the product idea generates really some purchase interest in it, overall appeal, and it's unique. That's the three areas that really will resonate and help you develop a new product. 
Uh, sometimes you forget about that, but it's really important because those three metrics really are key in a, a positive entry of a new product. So you want to get purchase interest, overall appeal, and uniqueness. The other question that you want to know and answer is do the products, do product attributes resonate with the target consumers? So important. Appearance, being appetizing, quality, pricing, that all has to be dealt with before you actually get into the product development itself. Also specific attributes for the individual products. Some, some products have special attributes that will interest people. Well, make sure that that's communicated and that is resonating well. If it's not, then go into different areas. We had just recently had some, um, uh, actually a um, snack food where they had different flavors. And obviously some of the flavors really didn't resonate. And they were going to go with those flavors until they recognized, well, maybe not, and let's not develop that product line with those flavors and that and that and that mix. Just go with some things that really will work for the product. Yeah. So it's so key. Also, looking at at, at at different types of claims and words. Do these do these claims are they meaningful to consumers? Will they buy more based on this claim? Are words like you know what a word like this is a superfood. You know, does that enhance the product at a point where people say, hmm, that, that is going to make me want to buy buy this product? I mean, we, we're just going through this, this uh, packaging redesign with a company where, you know, it, it's all about the, the enhanced nutrition of the various vegetables that are in these snacks. And, you know, moms are, are very specific about what they like and what they don't like when it comes to that sort of thing and what's going to motivate them to buy the buy the product. So I think that that sort of stuff in concept testing is 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 really critical. I agree. And really you want to make certain that also that there's some kind of competitive advantage. It's nice to put a product out there and competition is doing it already. And what's the advantage of them coming to you if the best leaf competition has you have loyalty for your competition, why are they going to come to you? What is the reason for purchase? And that's what you really have to understand. And if there's none, then actually redesign and focus what you focus what you need to do. Right. Exactly. You know, and to, to get it through into the market. Also, you have to make certain, which I can't stress enough, is that the, the new product you're introducing is not going to cannibalize your current line, if you have a current line. If it's a new, ultimately new product, that's not an issue. But if you do have a line of products, make certain, even though it's different in nature, it can still cannibalize your product line. Even your brand, because they'll look, oh, your brand, oh, I, there's another product within your brand, oh, I can use that. Even though it's a different product. So you have to be very cautious that the product that you're introducing will not cannibalize your current line, and that can be really assessed through marketing research. The second step, which I can't again stress enough, is the sensory testing, and that really to reduce the risk of offering a product that is really not optimized. Boy, that's a hot button with me, because being in the food and beverage business as long as I have been in, I, I can't tell you how many times I've stood around at, at a company where they're sitting around a table or in a kitchen and they're passing around samples of something and they're saying, oh, well, I think this needs a little more of this. I think this is a little too spicy. I think this is a winner. This is a loser. And, and we're not, I'm not talking small companies here. I mean, I'm talking multi-million dollar companies where they are making these crucial sensory decisions in-house mm-hmm. with a bunch of, bunch of guys most of the time 
just tasting something and saying, yep, this is great. Let's move forward. or No, let's add that. And that's, to me, I just, I, I can't fathom the thinking that goes, that goes behind that sort of thing. If you're going to invest in developing the product, in the packaging, in the distribution, in the marketing of it, why not make that extra investment up front on the sensory side, right? Totally agree. And even further, in a lot of major corporations, they have a lot of employees. So look, we'll test everything among our employees. And they will. And you do get many, many instances, I've seen it, where they have employees come down to their cafeteria and they give them samples and they do their little test about, you know, do they like it, do they don't like it? But they have to realize that may not be their ultimate target market. Everybody will eat it. Everybody will give your opinion. But is that really the target market who you're after and how they're going to respond the same way? It's absolutely skewed data, in my opinion. When, mm-hmm. they, when they go about a process like that, uh, it is, if you're not hitting your consumers, your exact consumers, the buyers, the buyers in that category, whether it's frozen food or, or fresh meat or snacks or whatever it is, the, the, the people who consume that category in the supermarket, they're the ones you want testing your product. Correct. And the other thing is make certain that your taste profile of the new product is optimized. We see it all the time. And this is so important because you count, your, your R&D comes, people come out with a great product. They love it. They bring it out and then we tell them, well, you know what? It's a little too oily. It's a little too salty. Uh, you have to modify some of the, um, the salt content or the sugar content. And number one, they take offense to that because they developed it. So you have to work on eggshells with them. But aside from that, when the, when, the, when the consumer comes back and says, I don't like it for those reasons, and you actually get the product profile, that is so insightful because you can now tweak the product and optimize the product to the best taste you can give the consumer. Yep, and that's a process. I mean, you see companies going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until they get it finely tuned perfectly. Correct. And I'll have some examples in a few moments I'd love to talk about. But additionally, uh, we have to understand the sensory claims that also can be made from these products. Because when you add, when when you actually introduce a product and add some specialty to it, you want to make claims. And in order to make claims, you have to have those tested. And there are certain legal parameters around that that have to be recognized. And then finally, how well does it compare to competition? Usually when you do sensory testing, I highly recommend that you look at your competitive set if there are competitors. Now, the other thing is a lot of companies tell me, oh, we're so unique, we don't have any competitors. I get that all the time. But somehow, after lots of discussions, we do find some kind of competitive evaluative product we can use. Right. So, again, you have that control factor. You know, how do we taste against this product? Do you prefer this, do you prefer A, B, or C? That type of that type of control, right? Definitely. Now, this is an interesting situation we just had not too long ago. Uh, in order to, but in order to do the sensory testing, the typical test is really a concept taste test. You want to get the concept. Does the concept, you know, um, explain what the expectations of taste and is the product delivering against the concept? You have to really have to understand that. And once you do that, an example of what we do talk about avoiding risk was, and we just recently did some work with a. Uh, a new company, uh, well, not a new company, but it was really a new company that wanted to introduce a product from Australia. And they were 
again, you're taking a product from Australia, bringing it into the United States, which you have maybe different taste and, and different needs. So, but they did want to bring it in. The concept generated really strong interest. It was a great product. It was a health product. It was wonderful. But then when a sensory test, we, sensory testing was conducted, the taste was not consistent with U.S. taste expectations. Very common. We find that many times. And also going from U.S. to other markets, we find that as well, which I'll also just elaborate a little bit on. But the consistency of the product was disliked. And, uh, and some people even mentioned they wouldn't even eat it because they didn't like the consistency. I couldn't even swallow it. But in Australia, it was great. People love it. And they said, why do people in the U.S. don't like it? Well, because that's not their orientation. That's not their taste. Palettes. Palettes right. are different. And then the appearance was also not really that well received. So, and so they had to go back and reformulate. And again, this decision to go back and reformulate really saved a substantial investment and, and reduced the risk. Because if they went out, people would try it because the, the concept was great. But once you try it, you couldn't eat the product. Yeah, I think that refining process is, is, is critical. You just keep going back until it hits those, those controls that you really, really need it to hit. Let's, um, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I, I often tell clients that I work with that your packaging is your in-store billboard. I mean, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to either catch people's eye and draw them in, or they're just going to walk past it and maybe go to a competitor's set. Uh, appetite appeal, design, messaging are all, all key elements on packaging that really needs to, to be tested. Uh, what are some ways brands can, can better test this to make sure that they get it right? Because again, you know, you're going through the process now. We just talked about developing a product uh, and getting it right as far as taste. Now we're moving into the packaging stage. You might have a great product in crappy packaging that, that looks horrible and is not communicating what, what consumers write. How can, how can brands do a better job of getting this right? Well, you, you're so true. And the package should communicate uh, what, the, what the expectation of the product is going to be. But even more so, it does have a halo effect on the product itself and, and the sensory part of the product which was amazing learning for our company when we were doing some work in the packaging area with um, different kinds of products. The first thing is, is your packaging optimized, optimized to the best, com, you know, to communicate your product and stimulate trial and support the product? You, you want to say, okay, is it going to generate trial? Because the picture on the package, is that enticing? Is that going to want you to even take this product? The words, is the ingredients what they're looking for? Is the package communicating um, what, what to expect when they eat the product, the preparation? All of these are a key factor that has to be recognized and understood before actually taking that package and bringing it to market. We did some, we did some research a number of years ago for this, this new, this, this really this brand evolution that we did where we just, not evolution, a revolution where we really radically, the, the, the company really was interested in going into a completely different part of the supermarket. They were coming from the nat natural organic section. They wanted to go, they wanted to go mainstream. And man, we did this level of testing that was just so cool where you could actually track 
what consumers were looking at. It, it tracked their eye as far as, you know, were they interested in this call out about, you know, the nutritional? Were they interested in the name? Were they interested in these other messages or the picture? What did they, where did they go first? Where did they go second? Where did they go third? And you got these charts that say, okay, that really scientifically said, this is really on this package design, this is the most important thing to, to the moms who are buying this product. Totally right. And we found something even, again, fascinating. Uh, we actually did work with a packaging company that th- their client was a pizza company, and they wanted to understand how the package goes to impact the pizza and which colors, size, shape. What would impact the—does it have an impact, number one? And if it did, what is the effect? Well, we did the study, and we actually had the same pizza in multiple—in different boxes— and the funny part was, it was fascinating, the same pizza, we gave it to consumers, and depending on the color, shape of the particular pack, the package, people perceived the pizza, number one, to have a different quality perception, different taste perception, and even heat, heat retention. So that just the packaging itself was changed, the pizza was identical, had no impact except for color and size. And the percep- it really haloed over to the product. That's how important packaging is for sensory perception. Yeah, the visuals and the messaging on the packaging can set the tone for how they're going to feel about how your product ultimately tastes. Mm-hmm. Totally. Amazing. Let's talk about media. So most often, this is the biggest line item in a marketing budget. How can companies and brands make sure they're going out with the right ad? with the right message, um, with the right visuals, with the right talent, um, effectively reducing the risk for an organization's advertising investment. So I'm spending these big dollars. How can I make sure that I have the biggest chance for success with this, with this ad? Marketing insights is your best method to help with that whole issue of reducing the risk of that major, major investment you should consider conducting an advertising research copy testing really to make certain that the communication is really optimized. And copy testing really will help you understand several things. First, how well is the ad communicating to your brand and the brand's value proposition? Are the claims and support used believable? They're relevant to your target audience. How does the ad impact consumer perceptions for your brand or product? Is the ad memorable? These are all parts of it. Does the ad fit the lifestyle of your target market? Very key. Is the, ad, is the ad's main message getting through to consumers? These are kind of things that are key to getting good advertising. Right. Do they get it? You know, because oftentimes, you know, you're, you know, we're immersed with the client in the development, and we're all so close to this that by the time you get to the end of the road, it's like everybody who's been close to it, they get it. And sometimes you put it in front of consumers and say, I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Totally true. And again, do they even like it or don't like it? You get that and you say, well, you know, I don't even like that ad. What are you kidding? kidding. How do they think of that? So those are the kind of things you want to do before you go out with the advertising. Exactly. And just recently, a company was planning a new advertising campaign, and the advertising agency developed 
really alternative executions, which usually occurs. Most of the time, you're not going to have one execution. Uh, most agencies will, as you well know, develop several to, to choose from. To decide which one to use in a campaign, a copy test usually that would be conducted. And the, the advertisements are generally evaluated for, again, being memorable, as I mentioned a few moments ago, communicating new benefits uh, to the, pro- uh, the product clearly. Uh, is the product appetizing? A quality product? Is the perceived taste good? Positive? Does it positively communicating the product attributes and claims? And again, does it generate interest in purchasing the product and seeing the advertisement? In the testing, we learned that one of the ads has significantly higher purchase interest in the company we just recently did than alternative ads. And also, the product claims resonated with consumers. Perfect. So we knew very easily which one to select. If we selected any other, it would not give us the responsiveness that we would want from advertising. So that sort of uh, helped our investment and keep the, you know, the risk lower in submitting that particular ad. Uh, in another testing instance, the product overall was well-received as a concept. However, since the green labeling identification was not sufficiently highlighted, as we discussed earlier about the green labeling, consumers were less interested in the product and the advertisement was less effective. They had it all, but the advertising didn't communicate it because it didn't focus on the right parts of the product value. Another, one other classic example, which I like to bring up, this is my, one of the better ones, was that a fast food chain that we worked with had advertised a new roast beef sandwich that was supposed to be made with premium roast beef. The communication seems strong, and management is typical of what I told you earlier about love falling in love with an ad. They fell in love with this ad. They said, it's got to work, so we don't have to test it. Let's just go out with it. Right. And that's what they did. And what they found is when they went into market, and this is, this is a disaster. When you see the markets that you didn't advertise in sold better than the markets that you advertised in. In fact, the, the sales were depressed in every market that was out, they advertised in. So panic you know, came across the company and the management, and they came to us and they said, help us, what's going on? How come, what's, what's happening? So they, now they decided to test, test this particular ad, which is good. So what we found was that when they showed the product in the ad, they showed it sideways uh, on, on a sandwich, and it looked like lunch meat, cheap lunch meat. So what they did is we came, the advertising agency came up with several different alternatives, and we found that when you slice the sandwich in half and then show the, in the sliced sandwich pieces where the, the half was, it looked like a really fine meat sandwich. That went on air, and actually sales not only was better than past, it surpassed all sales expectations. Yeah, so that, that's a great example how someone might see an ad like that, and they're not only turned off for that product, but now they're turned off to that brand. Correct. And, and they, they may have been a buyer of another product there, and they're saying, oh, you know what? <laughs> they just, it just left them with, you know, quote, a bad taste in their mouth for, <laughs> for, for the brand. I mean, that's a great example of how little nuances like that can, can turn consumers off. And brands and ad agencies might fall in love and think this is the greatest thing, and they don't take the time to, to test it to find out what are the nuances that are going to make this, what, what, what's going to compel to make people buy? Because at the end of the day, that's what you want. You want to be able to know from that research, did, are you more inclined to buy this product 
based on this this ad. And if they're not, they can love all kinds of things about the ad, cute picture, cute this, or, you know, love that saying. But if their intent is not raised to buy it, then you got to go back to the drawing board. Totally agree. And the other thing, which is very important, is not only did they like the ad, they fell in love with it and they wanted to go with it, they didn't recognize what really the downside risk was. So actually recognizing the risk is another aspect of whether or not you want to really test something or not. Yeah, so it's not just about, you know, is this new product launch going to succeed? It's, it's about what's the downside overall for, for our brand. That's a great, great insight. So, you know, we, we touched a little bit on this uh, a few minutes ago as far as different palettes um, throughout, throughout the world. And look, we live in a global economy. Um, I've been approached so many times about international brands that want to launch a product in the States or, or brands that have become really successful and well-established here in the States, and they want to go to international markets. They want to go abroad with their, their brands. And this requires a major investment from companies, and it's big decisions that must be right. Uh, how can companies minimize their investment risk when expanding into global markets, both in and out of, of, of the states? Yes. Well, in this case as well, uh, marketing insights is imperative in reducing the risk of your investment. There are several areas where marketing insights really can make a big difference. Before entering a new country, you must first be certain that there's room in the market for your brand. There are different attitudes, beliefs, lifestyles that are totally different than in the United States. And so let's say that you're going into a market and there's a, there's a major brand in the market currently for that particular um, category. There may be such loyalty, and it's inherent loyalty. We, we see that in Africa, in fact, where uh, we went in and there's a brand that's very popular there, and it, it went from there father to their grandfather to their great-grandfather. It's a heritage. And because of that heritage, they're not going to change. So you bring your brand in that category. What are your expectations of taking share from that brand? You have to go against the family history and the loyalty that may not be good. And you have to know that before going in. Right. Understanding understanding the market. We worked with this company um, number of years back, a Greek, uh, Greek company, and it was two brothers. And these guys were super successful over, over in Greece. They had great products over there, really successful. And they wanted to come into the States. They really felt they were at a place where we want to take this, this, this company beyond where, where we are. And it was, it was a great, it was a great product. And they tested their product. This was a deli product. And they tested it over and over and over again against Borset, you know the top the top deli meat out there, and they said we're not gonna we're not gonna stop until we test as good or better than Borset. So they finally you know had those marks, and the research was great, and it was it was a great product, and it was a better for you product as well. But you know what? They didn't understand. The deli category over here. I mean, the deli category is owned by Boar's Head and Deets and Watson, and it is incredibly hard to break into that market. So although they had a great product and a great message, they didn't do enough research to understand what the market was here. And is there room for them? Can they get in? And what's the cost 
of getting in, not just from an advertising perspective, but, you know, slotting and getting in there. What's it going to cost me to get a supermarket chain to take this on? And then how do I change consumer behavior to get them to, to not buy these top two and try mine? So they just didn't, they didn't, and you know what, it failed. I mean, it took, took a number of years for, for, for them to realize that this just wasn't, it wasn't going to make it. And they had a great product, great message. Everything was great about it, except they just could not fit into the category. Totally. And so in addition to that, you have to understand the brand you bring in. What benefits does it provide that country? So you have to actually, aside from or the people in the country, what you have to decide is understand how receptive people will be to the product concept that you're bringing in. So you have to understand that product concept. Is there something that's going to people are going to be receptive? Are they going to be receptive to your positioning in that particular market? Also, by doing the testing, you will understand and help you modify the positioning if you do decide to go into the market because sometimes you're not, it's not perfect. So it helps you at least understand where modifications have to be and if you want to go and still going to go into the market, what you have to modify to your positioning to get into the market. And then they'll help you also assess again, some of your basic pricing thresholds and understand all the kinds of information that you need to know before going into the market. Now, we've worked on introducing a company's condiment product uh, in this new market. It was they just really, it's a whole, this is actually in Latin America. It was a huge, huge undertaking. And we found that there was an opportunity really for this specific product. It was a U.S. product sold well in the U.S., and they want to bring it now into Latin America. Very normal, acceptable. And what happened was they learned that the current product was a great product, their base product, but when they actually did the assessment of the market, it would only satisfy half the people because that condiment has to come in two flavors before people would even consider it, which they didn't know about until they went into the market and recognized how important that second flavor is. So what they did is before going in, introducing anything, they said, okay, we need to produce a second flavor. So they actually went back, designed a second flavor, and before going in, they wanted to make sure the taste profile is going to be acceptable. So they taste tested the current product that they have as well as the new product they developed. And what they found in the first round of testing is that their profile was somewhat off of their basic product, and the flavor of the new product was not as good as they should have been. So that before going into a market, they went back and they reformulated the products and went back and tested it again. And what they found the second time is that their base product was successful, but their flavored product still didn't make it. So they went back a third time, tested it, modified it again, understand the basis, you know, different needs for changing the product. Went back the third time, was perfect, right on. They then introduced it and they're doing exceptionally well. But if they didn't do that, it would have been they would have the disaster on their hands. Yeah, think about the investment that would have been behind that very expensive failure. Mm-hmm. So conducting research isn't new to to my listening audience. I mean, I'm, I you know people that listen to this podcast are, are are seasoned, you know, food and beverage marketing pros. This isn't new today to them. But today, conducting research, you know, is 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 relatively easier with the new techniques. Um, you know, you've got 
Survey Monkey, you've got Google, you got you know, like you said, you know, people sometimes are bringing a bunch of people into into a room to to make these decisions. So, I mean, many companies have insights managers that that, that are that are just completely multiple insights managers that are just dealing with with research uh, in and of itself and breaking down the data into insights so that brand managers can better better understand it. But there is a lot of this kind of, I'm going to say, gut check type research that's out there or low-level research or this do-it-yourself or, you know, what I hear all the time is, you know, hey, let me post, let me do a post on Facebook and see what, see what people say. What, what are your thoughts on this, this, this do-it-yourself kind of lower-level research and how, what, what are the dangers and the pitfalls of that compared to really qualitative or quantitative research? Okay. Uh, there is a place for this type of research. Uh, the, what you, if, a, if you want to just do a quick poll and get us some idea, and it's not for a major decision and just want to get a sense, because there's always a need for nice-to-know information. Uh, nice-to-know information is something I discourage when you do a major research project because re- the major research project, not even major, but the proprietary research project is made for decision purposes. I want to make major decisions. I want to make a decision. That's why I would undergo a research program. However, I, I want to get a feel for maybe what my audience feels. A poll, just run out a sim- simple poll, and that's done all the time. You go to a Google, and they just send it out. It's not your target. It's just everybody, but they just send it out. Um, and you get some information back. And also you can probably go among your own communities and you have your Facebook um, emails and you go to people who, are, who like you on Facebook. Again, those are, are your customers and you want to get some sense of what your customers think. But again, those aren't the target always for new product decisions, line extensions, et cetera, which sometimes are being used incorrectly. And that's just, you have to be cautious about that. However, Aside from that, I think there, when you do it yourself research, it can be done, and managers do do it, but there are some pitfalls to look out for. And I'd just like to elaborate on a few, and if you're going to do it for decision purposes, this is what you should watch out for. Yeah, I think your point about, you know, is it a low-risk decision? Do I just want to get a quick gut check on this versus a high-level risk with high investment. That's, I think that delineating between those two, I think, is really, really important when it comes to, you know, you know DYI research or lower-level research versus more comprehensive research. Correct. The first thing you should have to look at, and I'm going to go through a few areas. The first area is the sample design. Uh, when you design your, your survey, you design it from just an not just nice and to know information, but you want to know how you're going to make a decision. But again, if you're doing your low level, it's not going to be for a major risk decision. But nice to know information is good and it has its place, but questions should be asked that will really help make meaningful decisions. So if you do what you do, nice to know, that's fine. But if you're using, if you need to make a major decision, as you just pointed out, you really want to do a more comprehensive research study. The next level is asking the right questions. My philosophy is always, you ask somebody a question, they'll give you an answer. Right, wrong, or indifferent, you're going to get an answer. And a lot of times, we, I've seen this over and time and time again, 
is, again, how many surveys did you take where you really weren't able to even answer the question? You didn't have the knowledge. They, it was a, we had a survey about a telephone uh, quality, and they were asking the detail of the engineering of, to a consumer. How can you do that? You, know, you, you can't answer it, but they'll give you an answer. In fact, I was even surveyed. I had no clue, but I gave them, they, wanted, they wouldn't give me an out, so I had to give them an answer. So the point is you have to make sure that you, know, you ask questions that can be answered. Yeah, the right questions. Right. And again, each question should focus, and I see this all the time again, which is a pitfall, um, on multiple areas. And they want to know, well, I want to know how good the fruit tastes in a product. So how much do you agree that the that both the uh, how do you, both do you agree that the apples and the oranges flavor really works? Well, I can answer the question. Yeah, the apples and oranges, but I, I might not give you the right answer because I might just like the apples. I might not like the oranges, the, the flavor in it. So you have to actually split a question to ask only one specific area at every time. Don't ask multiples. And you'll see, I see that all the time, and it's a major pitfall. And then when asking a question, you have to make sure if you can get if you give choices, make sure you include all the choices. Because sometimes you'll give choices and there's, well, that's, uh, I don't have any of these. But there's no place to say I don't have any of these, so you have to pick one. <laughs> so you pick a choice that's, that you don't really know. Right. So, you, you, you know, see, but as I said, you ask a question, you'll get an answer. I guarantee you. The other thing is sampling. Sampling is key. Um, and that's why I said the difference between polling and really sampling. Um, if you don't you speak to the right people, you're not going to get the right answer. Uh, for example, if you want to know how people feel about, let's say, a cream cheese flavor and sample the general population, you'll get different, a different answer than if you just sample cream cheese users. If you go to category users, they'll give you one answer because they have more experience with it. But if you go to everybody, they'll just give you an answer. Right. Category. Buyers in the category. I, am, I emphasize that over and over and over again. This is not, we don't want to know how everybody feels about this. We want to know how buyers in this category feel, whether they're buying your brand, whether they're buying competitors' brand, but it's buyers in the category. And even sometimes you may even want to drill down further and say buyers of flavors in the category to see if that particular flavor will resonate. Exactly. Uh, the other thing is questionnaire design. You have to design a questionnaire. I see this again time and time again, that one question will bias another. And if you don't put it in the right order, when, you, when one person asks one question and they have to answer it, they'll definitely have to answer the second question the way you want them to, which you really don't want them to. So the fact is you have to watch the order in which you ask questions so that you don't give away the answer. For example, if you say... Uh, we have a new concept, and the price of this concept is going to be $4.50. Fine. Two questions later, you say, okay, this is this new concept. What do you expect the price to be? Well, you already told them what you're going to charge them. What do they expect it to be? They'll, they may tell you what their expectations because that's what you're looking for. But I would ask the expectations before I tell them anything about price. So, therefore, the order in, you ask, in which you ask the questions is very important. The other thing is the type of questions. Do you ask an open-end or closed-end? This has been always my feeling about the two. I use open-end questions sparsely for really important issues because people do not like to answer, write in a lot of information when you're giving them. On Nowadays, however, I have, to, I have to admit that because you use computers, people are willing to say things that they normally would not tell you over the phone or in person. 
and they're very graphic, and sometimes you have to reduce some of the language and things that they tell you to give to management. However, with that said, I do believe that you know, limit it to what's really needed and what you really want to learn so you, so you don't tire out the respondent. The other thing is in closed end, as I mentioned early, may, earlier, make sure that you ask all the, the alternatives. The other question is, or the other area is, what scales to use? This becomes so important. It seems irrelevant. Everybody has their favorite on scale sizes. You know, you can use a two-point scale. Yes, no. You can use a three-point. Definitely, probably. Uh, def, uh, like it a lot. Neither, you know, neither like it or don't like it at all. You can use a four-point scale. You can use a five-point, six, seven, ten, even a hundred-point thermometer scale. Depending on what you want to learn is the scale. So a lot of times the platforms that you have, the standard platforms, only give you one choice. And that choice might not, may not be appropriate to the questions that you need to get the proper answer from. So therefore, you have to be cognizant of the scales that you're using. The other thing is the analysis of data. I can't stress this enough. Uh, this, is, this is close to my heart because that's what we do. Analysis is really differentiates a, res- a good researcher from a researcher. And what I'm talking about is when you analyze data, you know, a lot of times when you get do research just in general, like a poll, you pick one number and you say, oh, I know what people think. This is what they think. You know, 80% feel this way. But in reality, that 80% might not be the right number. And you have to look at research as a whole and all the questions you ask and what it's telling you. And research tells you a story. And based on that story, you may have an, an unusual number in it that doesn't make sense. But over time, as you look at it and deep dive, it start may making some sense. So, but it, you have to look for the story in the research. And once you get that story, then you can make the right decisions. Yeah, I always tell people there's a big difference between looking at data and looking at insights. People don't want to, brand managers don't want to look at a pile of data. They want to, to look at the insights that are ascertained from, from the data. And that's what a good researcher does. And one additional point which I'd like to make, which is usually neglected, is the legality of the acti- of doing a, su- a study. When you do it yourself, be cautious. Know the legal ramifications. You just can't go to a respondent and ask them anything you want or even reach them because if you reach them, how did they get their name? There's privacy issues right now. And if you don't follow that and follow what disclaimers you have to put in there in your research, you will end up in, in, having su- substantial fines uh, particularly if you do global now, because Europe has a new privacy laws, and they're strictly adhered to, and they're overseen. In fact, before, beside from the global, locally, we have a company that actually recently did a telephone survey using cell phones. They did not have permission to do that. They were fined $1,500 per interview. So you can see what that can be. So if you don't know the legal ramifications of what you're doing, just be cautious. Same thing with even with a lot of times you say, oh, I want to incentivize my, my respondent. I'll do a um, sweepstakes. Great. Sweepstakes is great. It's going to save you money. You only have one, you know, few hundred dollars and you don't have to pay everybody. But the legal disclaimer that you have to have and what you have to go through is extensive and you have to have it before offering a um, – an actual uh, sweepstakes. That's good. That's really helpful information to know. So, hey, uh, final question, Mark, and uh, it's a loaded question. Uh, it's actually a two-part, two-part question. Um, so no matter how large or small a brand is, they have limits to their budgets. Some have 
you know, large amounts for research. Some have minimal amounts. Some have no uh, dollars for research. Um, but in the scope of things, um, what what can they what what can they do as far as as far as scope goes? What 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 a, what kind of a percentage? L- let me word it like this. So, what what percentage of an overall marketing budget should be allocated towards research and insights? Yep, that is a loaded question. Thank you. Yep, it is. I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. Uh, <laughs> when it comes down to budgeting and research budgeting. I don't see it as a percentage of what your, you know, your marketing budget. You have to allocate it as part of your marketing budget, but it really is dependent on the decisions that have to be made. You build the research from the decisions you have in your strategic plan over the year. So different studies will, will cost different amounts. And so to actually determine what the budget is and where you want to cut and where you want to build and what you want to change and actually design a budget, what you do is you take a look at your strategic plan for the period, a year, whatever you want, and say, what decisions I have to make? What decisions am I comfortable with? What decisions do I need additional support? Uh, if I'm going to go out with a new product and I want to and have new um, legal, you know, I want to make legal claims, what, it's going to cost me X amount to do that. Um, what what would the total be? And then you modify it accordingly. Now, one point I would like to make, and it's a misnomer about research. They always feel that research is oh, it's an expensive thing. Companies, only major companies can afford it. It's a total expense. It's not necessarily true. There are many ways to do research and get at the information you're looking at, good research. And in many instances, if the problem is stated to the professional, a design can be created to fit within most budgets whether it's large or small. And sometimes large budgets, we say, hey, you don't need as much money, cut back. And sometimes we tell you, if you, know, what are you, gonna, if you don't have a decision to be made, don't do the research, save your money totally. Because a lot of times we'll get plans, people say, well, I want to do X, Y, Z, and what decision are you going to make? And you know, there's no real decision that can be made from it, so why do it? My feeling is you build the budget, and it's how much insurance you feel you need. For example, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll give you an example. If you use, if I'm going to do an app, if I'm going to have a new product in the marketplace, and I want to assess, uh, is the, the, what assess the taste profile just in general? This is just for internally, maybe some from fine tuning. I may use a little smaller sample and not as an expensive test because I don't need an expensive test or a large sample. However, if I'm going to use legal, if I want to use it for claims and I need legal substantiation. You need a sample, according to the industry, of a minimum of 300 to be to communicate any legal claim. Therefore, the cost will be a little more. So when developing that and saying, well, okay, I'm going to make legal claims, you build that into it. So it'll be a little more money, and it'll be a little more against your budget, but look at the risk that you, you're, you're looking at. And then what kind of claims are you going to make? Are you making comparative claims against a competitor? Then it even becomes more detailed. So depending on the decision you're going to need, and that's how you develop your budget. As far as percentage, you can do it minimally, almost almost as much as if you did it yourself to get good research. Yeah, and the second, so the second part of that question, this is this is even a little bit more more ambivalent, so to speak. But the, the second part of the question would be, if I'm a smaller a smaller brand and I'm introducing a new product, and you know, and I'm looking at my budget and I'm saying. I really don't even have the dollars to to advertise this. What can I do? How am I going to afford sensory testing? How am I going to uh, afford branding, 
research? How am I going to afford uh, packaging research? All of this stuff. What if I can't do all of that? I mean, what what would you say to to a small emerging brand that you know they need to do some level of research, but they cannot package all this stuff together and do it? It's a common occurrence. Um, I believe that a company should focus on what's the bottom line most important. When you get a new when you're coming out into the marketplace, everybody has a feeling of what's going to work. So, you don't have to be as stringent at that point. Uh, you're also going to know you're also going to want to know um, you know, is it is it you want to fine tune the positioning? I think you've spent a lot of time in getting the product and you you want you can take the chance on someone's positioning if you don't go astray too astray. What you definitely want to do is taste test the product. Do a sensory test. If I had to do one test, I'd like to know what my profile is versus my competition because in a food business, if they don't like your product, you're not going to succeed. And that is bottom line. So if I have to pick one test I would want to do, I want to make sure my product tastes good. And I've said, I had this product that um, the, the company told me it's the greatest tasting product in the world. It was a children's product. And it was the greatest taste, and the kids will love it. And they all loved it. And, I, and they were going to go out with it, and they didn't really have a budget. And they said, I can't, I don't have any budget. What should I do? And I said, give it to children. And they did, and they saw that they had to fine-tune that product. Otherwise, it would not work. So if your product does not taste good and you're in the food business, definitely sensory testing would be my choice. Well, that's been some great insight. No pun intended. Um, Mark, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, really appreciate your thoughts and insights. Before uh, before we sign off, why don't you take a minute and give your business a plug? Tell tell my listening audience what what type of business you're in, how they can get in contact with you for for these types of things. That would be perfect. Thank you, Jane. Um, we uh, it's Chudnoff Associates Marketing Research. We're a full service marketing research company specializing in food and food service. And we are known for our creative design development and our analytics. Uh, to get to know us a little better, please feel free to visit us on our website, which is www.chudnorf.com, and uh, you'll learn all about what we do. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again, Mark. Hey, this is Jamie Allabach with Mark Chudnoff, and you've been listening to the Peppered Podcast, where we bring seasoned talk for food and beverage marketing and brand professionals. Let's grow your brand together.